Chapter Eight of Starborn. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Starborn by Andre Norton. Chapter Eight. Airlift. They were airborne once more, but Raff was not pleased. In the seat beside him, which Captain Hobart should be occupying, there now squirmed an alien warrior who apparently was uncomfortable in the chair-like depression so different from the low stools he was accustomed to. Sariki was still in the second passenger place, but he too shared that with another of the men from the city, who rested across bony knees a strange weapon rather like a Terran rifle. No, the spacemen were not prisoners. According to the official statement they were allies. But, Raff wondered, as against his will he followed the globe in a northeastern course, how long would that fiction last if they refused to fall in with any suggestions the aliens might make? He did not doubt that there was on board the globe some surprise which could shoot the flitter out of the air, if, for example, he adjusted the controls before him and bore west toward the mountains and the safety of the spaceship. Either of the aliens he now transported could bring him under control by using those weapons, which might do anything from boiling a man in some unknown ray to smothering him in gas. He had not seen the arms in action, and he did not want to. Yet Hobart and Lablet did not, as far as he could tell, share his suspicions. Lablet was eager to see the mysterious storehouse, and the captain was either moved by the same desire, or else had long since deduced the folly of trying to make a break for it. Thus they were now heading seaward, with the captain and Lablet sharing quarters with the leaders of the expedition on board the Globe, and Raff and the Comtech with companions, or guards, bringing up the rear. The aliens had even insisted on stripping the flitter of much of its Terran equipment before they left the city pointing out that the cleared storage space would be filled with salvage when they made the return voyage. The globe had been trailing along the coastline, and now it angled out to glide over a long finger of cape, rocky and water-worn, which pointed at almost a right angle into the sea. This dwindled into a reef of rock, like the nail on a finger. The sea ahead was no unbroken expanse. Instead there was a series of islands, some merely tops of reefs over which the waves broke, others more substantial, rising well above the threatening water, and one or two showing the green of vegetation. The chain of islets extended so far out that when the flitter passed over the last one, the main continent was out of sight. Now only water stretched beneath them. The globe skidded on as if its pilot had given it an extra burst of power, and Raff accelerated in turn having no desire to lose his guide, but they were not to make the ocean-wide trip in one jump. At midday he saw again a break in the smooth carpet of waves, another island, or perhaps the southern tip of a northern continent, for the land swept in that direction as far as he could see. The globe spiraled down to make a neat landing on a flat plateau, and Raff prepared to join it. When the undercarriage of the flitter jarred lightly on the rock, he saw signs that this was a man, or alien-fashioned place, 
which must have had much use in the dim past when his new companions ruled all their native world. The rock had been smoothed off to a flat surface, and at its perimeter were several small domed buildings. Yet, as there had been in the countryside and in the city, except at its very heart, there was an aura of desertion at the site. Both his alien passengers jumped out of the flitter, as if only too pleased at their release from the Terran flyer. For the first time Raff was shaken out of his own preoccupation with his dislike for the aliens, to wonder if they could be moved by a similar distaste for Terrans. Lablet might be interested in that as a scientific problem. The pilot only knew how he felt, and that was not comfortable. Soriki got out and walked across the rock, stretching. But for a long moment Raff remained where he was, behind the controls of the flyer. He was as cramped and tired of travel as the Comtech, perhaps even more so since the responsibility of the flight had been his. And had they landed in open country he would have liked to have thrown himself down on the ground, taking off his helmet and unhooking his tunic collar to let the fresh wind blow through his hair and across his skin. Perhaps that would take away the arid dust of centuries which, to his mind, had grimed him since their hours in the city. But here was no open country only a landing space which reminded him too much of the roof of the building in the metropolis. A half-dozen of the breastplated warriors filed out of the globe and went to the nearest dome, returning with heavy boxes. Fuel? Supplies. Raff shrugged off the problem. The pilot was secretly relieved when Captain Hobart dropped out of the hatch in the globe and made his way over to the flitter. "'Everything running smoothly?' he asked with a glance at the two aliens who were Raff's passengers. "'Yes, sir. Any idea how much farther?' Raff questioned. Hobart shrugged. "'Until we work out basic language difficulties,' he muttered. "'Who knows anything? There is at least one more of these way-stations. They don't run on atomics, need some kind of fuel, and they have to have new supplies every so often.' Their headman can't understand why it isn't necessary for us to do the same. "'Has he suggested that his techneers want to look at our motors, sir?' Hobart unbent a little. It was as if in that question he had read something which pleased him. "'So far we've managed not to understand that. And if anyone tries it on his own, refer him to me, understand?' "'Yes, sir!' Some of the relief in Raff's tone came through and he saw that the captain was watching him narrowly. "'You don't like these people, Kirby?' The pilot replied with the truth. "'I don't feel easy with them, sir. Not that they've shown any unfriendliness. Maybe it's because they're alien.' He had said the wrong thing and knew it immediately. "'That sounds like prejudice, Kirby.' Hobart's voice carried the snap of a reprimand. "'Yes, sir,' Raff said woodenly. That had done it as far as the captain was concerned. The fierce racial and economical prejudices, which had been the keystones of the structure of Pax, had left their shadow on Terra's thinking. Nowadays a man would better be condemned for murder than for prejudice against another. It was the unforgivable crime. And in that unconsidered answer Raff had rendered unreliable in the eyes of authority any future report on the aliens which he might be forced to make. Silently cursing his lack of judgment, 
Raff made a careful check of the flyer, which might not be necessary, but going through the motions of doing his duty gave him some relief. Once the idea struck him of claiming some trouble that would take them back to the spacer for repairs, but Hobart was too good a mechanic himself not to see through that. They covered the second stage of their flight by evening, this time putting down on an island where, by some ancient and titanic feat of labor, the top had been sheared off a central mountain to make a base. A ring of reefs cut off the land from the action of the waves. At once a party of aliens left the main company and made their way down the mountain to prowl along the shore. They made a discovery of sorts, for Raff saw them ring in some object they had pulled up on the sand. What it was, and what meaning it had for them, they did not try to explain to the Terrans. The party spent the night there, the four spacemen wrapped in their sleeping rolls by the flitter, the aliens in their globe-ship. The Terrans did not miss the fact that the others had unobtrusively posted guards at the only two places where the mountain could be climbed, and each of those guards cradled in the crook of his arm one of the rifle-weapons. They were aroused shortly after dawn. As far as Raff could see, the island was barren of life, or else any creature native to it kept prudently out of the way while the flyers were there. They took off, the globe rising like a balloon into the morning sky, the flitter waiting until it was airborne before scaling after it. The mountainous island where they had based was the sea sentinel of an archipelago which they saw spread out below them as if someone had flung a handful of pebbles into a shallow pool. Most of the islands were merely rocky crags, but there were two which showed the green of small open fields, and Raff thought he caught a glimpse of a dome-house on the last. They were now over a region thick with islands, the first collection giving way to a second, and then a third. Raff, expecting no sudden move on the part of the globe he trailed, was startled when the alien ship made a downward swoop. At the same time the warrior seated beside him tugged at the sleeve of his tunic and jabbed a finger toward the ground, clearly an order to follow. Raff cut speed and cautiously lost altitude, determined that he was not going to be rushed into any move for which he did not know the reason. The globe was hovering over a small island set a little apart from the others. A moment later Suriki's excited voice drew Raff's attention from his controls to what was going on below. "'There's people down there! Look at them run!' They were too far away to be sure of the nature of the brown-gray things so close to the color of the sea-washed rock that they could only be detected when they moved. But it was evident that they were alive, and as Raff brought the flitter closer, he was also certain that they ran on their two hind feet instead of on an animal's four pads. From the under part of the globe-ship licked a tongue of fire. With the force of a whiplash it coursed across the rock, and in its passing embrace the creatures below writhed and withered to charred heaps. They had no chance under that methodical blasting. The alien beside Raff signaled again for a drop. He patted the weapon that he held and motioned for Raff to release the covering of the windshield. But the pilot shook his head firmly. This might be war. The aliens could have a very good reason for their deadly attack on the creature's surprise below, but he wanted no part of it, nor did he want to get any closer to the scene of slaughter. 
and he made an emphatic gesture that the windshield could not be opened while the flitter was airborne. But as he did so they glided down, and he caught a single good look at what was going on on the rock, a look which remained to haunt his dreams for long years to come. For now he saw clearly the creatures who ran fruitlessly for safety. Some reached the edge of the cliff, and leaped to what was an easier death in the sea. But too many others could not make it, and died in flaming agony and they were not all of one size. Children! There was no mistaking the infant in its mother's arms, the two small ones who fled hand in hand until one stumbled, and the burning lash caught them both as the other strove to pull the fallen to its feet. Raff gagged. He triggered the controls and soared up and away, fighting the heaving in his middle, shaking off with one savage jerk the insistent pawing hand of the alien who wanted to join in the fun. "'Did you see that?' he demanded of Sariki. For once the sound-tech sounded subdued. "'Yes,' he replied shortly. "'Those were children,' Raff hammered home the point. "'Young ones, anyway,' the comtech conceded. "'Maybe they aren't people. They had fur all over them.' Raff grinned mirthlessly. Should he now accuse Sariki of prejudice? What did it matter if a thinking creature was clothed in a space-suit, silken bandages, or natural fur? It was still a thinking creature. And he was sure that those had been intelligent creatures he had just seen blasted without a chance to fight back. If these were the enemy the aliens feared, he could understand the vicious cruelty of the attack which had killed the man he had been shown back in the city. Fire against primitive spears was not equal and when the spears got their chance they must make up for much to balance the scales of justice. He did not even wonder why his emotions were so wholeheartedly enlisted upon the side of the furred people. Nor did he try to analyze his feelings. He was only sure that more than ever he wanted to be free of the aliens and out of this whole venture. The warrior sharing his seat was sulking now twisting about to look back at the island as Raff circled in ever-widening glides, to get away from the sight and yet not lose track of the globe when it would have finished its dirty business and take once more to the air. But the alien ship was in no hurry to leave. "'They are making sure,' Sariki reported, "'given the whole island a fire-bath. I wonder what that stuff is.' "'I'd just as soon not know.' Raff returned from between set teeth. If that is one of their pieces of precious knowledge, we're as well off without it. He stopped short. Perhaps he had said too much. But Terra had been racked by the torrid horror of atomic war, until all his kind had been so revolted that it was bred into them not to meddle again with such weapons. And war by fire aroused in them that old horror. Surely Sariki must feel it, too and when the Comtech did not comment, Raff was sure of that. He hoped that the slaughter had made some impression on the captain and on Lablet into the bargain. But when, as if sated with killing, the globe rose again from its position over the island, moving almost sluggishly into the fresh sky, he had to follow it on. More islands were below, and he feared that each one might show some sign of life and tempt the killers to a second hunting. Luckily, that did not happen. The chains of islands became a cape as they had on the coast of the western continent. 
and now the globe swung to the south, trailing the shoreline. Forest made green splotches with bluish overtones, running from the sea cliffs back to carpet the land. So far no signs of civilization were to be seen. This land was as untouched as that where the spacer had landed. Then they saw the bay, stretching out wide arms to engulf the sea. It could have harbored a whole fleet, and marching down to its waters were broad levels of buildings, a giant staircase leading from sea to cliff-tops. They had it here! Raf saw what Sariki meant by that outburst. Destruction had struck. He had seen the atomic ruins of his own world, those which were free enough from radiation to explore, but he had never seen anything like these chilling scars. In long strips the very stone which provided foundation for the tiered city had been churned and boiled, had run in rivulets of lava down to the sea, enclosing narrow tongues of still untouched structures. The fire-whip the globe had used, magnified to some infinitely greater extent. It could be. The alien at his side pressed tightly against the windshield gazing down at the ruins and now he mouthed a gabble of words which was echoed by his fellow, sitting with Suriki. Their excitement must mean that this was their goal. Raf slacked speed, waiting for the globe to point away to a landing. But to his surprise the alien ship shot forward inland. The long day was almost over as they came to a second city with a river knotting a ribbon through its middle. Here were no traces of the fury which had laded the seaport with havoc. This collection of buildings seemed whole and perfect. There was, oddly enough, no landing strip within the city. The globe coasted over the rough oval and came down in open fields to the west. It was a maneuver which Raff copied, though he first dropped a flare as a precaution and brought the flyer down in its red glare, with the warrior expressing shrill disapproval. "'I don't think they like fireworks,' Sariki remarked. Raff snorted. So they don't like fireworks. Well, I don't like crack-ups, and I'm the pilot. But he didn't believe that the Comtech was really protesting. Sariki had been very quiet since they had witnessed the attack on the island. Grim-looking place, was his second comment as they touched ground. Since Raff privately had held that opinion of all the alien settlements he had so far seen, he agreed. Their two alien passengers were out of the flitter as soon as he opened the bubble shield. And as they stood by the Terran flyer, they held their weapons ready, facing out into the dusk, as if they half expected trouble. After the earlier episode that day, Raff did not wonder at their preparedness. Terror begets terror, and ruthlessness arouses retaliation in kind. "'Kirby! Sariki!' Hobart's voice sounded out of the shadows. Stay where you are for the present. Sariki settled deeper in his seat. He doesn't have to tell me to break jets, he muttered. I like it here. Raff did not need to echo that. He had a strong surmise that had he been tempted to roam away from the flitter, the move would not have been encouraged by the alien guardsmen. If this was their treasure city, they would not welcome any independent investigation by strangers. When the captain joined them, he was accompanied by the officer who had first shown Raff the globe. And the warrior was either disturbed or angry, 
for he was talking in a steady stream, and his hands were whirling in explanatory gestures. They didn't like that flare, Hobart remarked, but there was no reproof in his words. As a spacer pilot he knew that Raff had only done what duty demanded. We're to remain here for the night. Where's Lablet? Sariki wanted to know. He's staying with Yusaz, the alien commander. He thinks he has the language problem about solved. Good enough, Sariki pulled out his bedroll. We're out of touch with the ship. There was a second of silence, unduly prolonged, it seemed to Raff. Then Hobart spoke. We couldn't expect to keep in call forever. The best comm has its range. When did you lose contact? Just before these wrapped-up heroes played with fire back there. I gave the boys all I knew up until then. They knew we were headed west, and they had us beamed as long as they could. So it wasn't too bad, thought Raff, but he didn't like it, even with that mitigating factor. To all purposes the four Terrans were now surrounded by some twenty times their number, in an unknown country, out of all communication with the rest of their kind. It could add up to disaster. End of chapter.